Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Father Peter Stravinskis, who's been with us before. He joined us last April, in fact, to discuss how the Church should respond to the COVID crisis. He is the editor of The Catholic Response and author of many books, including The Catholic Church and the Bible and Understanding the Sacraments. Our topic today is an article that he had in the Catholic World Report recently. It was entitled, School Choice Overcomes a Major Historical Hurdle. It was from July 7th, in which he described some good news coming out of the Supreme Court. That's, that's refreshing. Uh, welcome, Father Stravinskis. Good to be with you, Mark. Okay, well, your, your piece jumps right into this Supreme Court decision that came down recently entitled Espinoza v. Montana. Give us the background of that case. Uh, yes, uh, apparently the state of Montana uh, fashioned some kind of tax credit or uh, for children uh, in low-income situations, which included not simply public schools, but private schools. And uh, Mrs. Espinoza had her children in religious private schools, uh, not Catholic, but religious otherwise. Uh, un, 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 uh, so she had him there, them there, and the state of Montana, their treasury department, declared that the tax dollars could not be used in a religious private school, only a secular private school. And, um, <clears throat> and so the case went through the, the various levels of courts, finally arriving at the Supreme Court. Now, Montana based its judgment, the Treasury Department, on the existence uh, in their state constitution of what is generally referred to as a Blaine Amendment. The Blaine Amendment has origins in New York State, uh, whereby Senator Blaine attempted and success succeeded in barring any kind of governmental financial assistance to so-called sectarian schools. I should note that any time that there's a discussion about uh, faith-based schools, if they're called sectarian, you can understand and imagine immediately that the judgment is going to be negative about it because it's a, a emotionally charged word. Uh, so we prefer to use either religious schools or faith-based schools. And, and that, that goes back to the 19th century, the, the first Blaine Amendment, and it was aimed specifically at Catholic schools. Uh, this, of course, if you know uh, that sad period of history, was the Know Nothing movement, the nativists, uh, who were hell-bent on determining to, to 
drive out any kind of Catholic influence. It was the time of the beginning of really big waves of Catholic immigration. Uh, first the Irish and then Germans and then from uh, Eastern Europe and Southern Europe and so on. And what happened at that time was that it simply wasn't left to New York State to have such an amendment, but dozens of other states uh, in a fury introduced the same kind of legislation. Uh, the state of, of Oregon went so far in 1925 as to ban any religious schools at all. And that was specifically aimed at a group of religious sisters who had a school. And that case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and that's Pierce versus the Society of Sisters. And the Supreme Court in 1925 declared that the child is no mere creature of the state and that parents have the prior right to determine the most appropriate e educational environment for their children. That's a landmark decision, and, and every court decision since then has had to, be, had to reckon with that. Interestingly, in 1929, Pope Pius XI, writing his encyclical Divini Elius Magistri on Christian education, cited the U.S. Supreme Court decision as an example of proper jurisprudence. To my, the best of my knowledge, it's the only time any papal document has ever quoted a Supreme Court decision. So that's the, the historical background to this situation. And the, uh, the Supreme Court uh, in Espinoza validated the right of parents to use religious schools and where there is uh, there are public monies available for private schools, necessarily they must include religious or faith-based schools. The vote was a rather surprising seven to two decision. All of the Catholic educated uh, justices uh, which are six of them. So five of them joined in that uh, 7-2 decision. The only Catholic-educated one not to was Sotomayor. And as I noted in my article, it's particularly distressing because she herself, a Bronx girl, has made the point many, many times, if it weren't for her Catholic education, all 12 years, uh, K-12, to uh, 13 years, that she would never have gotten out of the ghetto. Uh, it was precisely her Catholic education. And so uh, what we're seeing here is it worked for her, but tough luck on anyone else who's in that situation today. And also tremendous lack of gratitude for what she did receive from the church. I should point out that the high school that she went to, uh, Mother Cabrini High School, uh, as a matter of fact, was in serious straits a number of years ago, ultimately closing and Sotomayor never lifted a finger to help her own alma mater. Hmm. Father, what is behind the idea? I mean, I think it's very valuable in the piece that you do go back into the history of, of what has been at least partly undone, rightly undone by this decision, but what is the long-standing idea that treating a religious institution on the same footing as a secular institution somehow favors the religious institution or somehow compromises the state uh, as if simply giving equal say to a religious institution endorses it. What is, how, why would one assume that? The, the fundamental point to understand is the state has a legitimate interest 
in the education of children. There's no question about that. But the state's interest uh, is only to the effect that an individual educational institution is fulfilling the state's legitimate expectations, uh, namely that children would learn how to read, write, and do arithmetic, the three R's, and, uh, and be able to become uh, useful, productive citizens of, of the state. And anything that goes beyond that is, as a matter of fact, uh, judicial uh, or legislative tyranny. And so I think it's important to, and that's precisely the background to the Blaine Amendments and, and their, their cousins that sprang up all over the country. How many people believe that the phrase wall of separation, church and state, is actually in the Constitution? Oh, I, I think the vast majority of people do. And, you know, to set the record straight, it's not in any document of uh, either the judiciary or the legislature. It's from a private letter of Thomas Jefferson as president to the Danbury Baptist Association who had asked him to declare a day of prayer and fasting. And he says, and that's not my responsibility, that's not my job. And he says, there was a wall of separation between church and state. And that expression took on a life of its own and took on constitutional value for, uh, for over a century. I think it was popularized around the time of the Blaine Amendments, correct? Did sure, it come into, sure. it came into It came into usage at, at that well, see, also, it's important to, to realize that up through the 19th century, the vast majority of elementary and secondary schools were denominational schools, Lutherans, Anglicans, Calvinists, Congregationalists, all had their own schools, and all of those schools were publicly funded. The, uh, the kink occurred when Archbishop uh, John Hughes of New York in the middle of the 19th century, 1850 or so, asked the Board of Education of New York to fund Catholic schools. And they said, oh, we can't do that. And so, although Hughes was a foreign-born Irishman, he knew American constitutional law very well. And he said, well, the government doesn't have to aid religious schools, but if it aids one religious form of school, it must aid them all. And they realized, of course, that the old gent knew what he was talking about. And so then they said, well, fine, then we won't aid any religious schools. And instead, they named all of the so-called common, all of the denominational schools, Protestant schools, were called common schools, and they were all continued to receive their aid. And the Catholic schools were left out in, in the cold. And from that moment forward, so from the 1850s to the present moment, we've endured the, what my mother used to call double taxation. We pay for the public schools that we don't use and don't want to use for very good reasons. Uh, and we have to pay tuition to obtain the education that our parents want us to have. Now you say in your piece that the fundamental basis for the majority decision here, uh, overturning Montana's decision, was that, quote, school choice initiatives that exclude religious schools violate the freedom of religion clause of the First Amendment. So it's that simple. It, it, it's really that simple. Exactly. Exactly. And we, we've seen even more recently 
with the various federal programs uh, coming out in regard to COVID, that, for example, in New Jersey, the governor, a so-called Catholic, attempted to keep the Catholic schools from receiving the aid that flowed from the federal government. So this is not something that's uh, an historical remnant. Uh, this is something that's still very, very real. You refer to a previous Supreme Court decision just a few years before from 2011, Arizona Christian Schools Tuition Organization v. Wynn, W-I-N-N. What was that case? It was a, a similar situation. Um, and, and there have been a number of, of, of cases of late that have been very, very helpful in, uh, in setting a proper stage for all of this. Uh, Arizona uh, permitted educational tax credits for non-public school children. And in other words, that included religious-based schools. And there was opposition to that. And that case went to the court. And the court decided similarly that you can't exclude religious schools if you include, if your aim is public and non-public alike. So this, that decision and this decision should open things up all across the country. States, oh, the, I mean, is this the end of the Blaine Amendments? Yes. Well, um, as I point out in, in, in the article, um, uh, malevolent legislators for years have said to uh, religious uh, educators, we would love to help you. We really would, but it's against our const uh, state constitution. We can't do it. Well, now that fig leaf has been removed. They can no longer hide behind that statement because the court has said, if that's in your constitution, your state constitution, it's unconstitutional. And so then they have to, con and of course the biggest problem is so many of these legislators are in the hip pocket of the government school uh, teachers lobby, which is incredibly powerful. The UFT and the NEA. Legislators are terrified uh, to confront them. In New York State a couple of years ago, there was a, a similar uh, aid package that was uh, about to be approved bipartisanly in the New York State legislature, a legislature and Governor Cuomo said he would even sign it. And at the last minute, the public school lobby was so massive that the program fell apart before coming for, for a vote. Do you, do you think it's a political winner in many, many states, though, now? Well, I, I, I think there are a number of issues to you. Um, first of all, uh, the anti-Catholicism behind uh, Blaine amendments and, and their ilk uh, are really of little, of much less importance today than they were even 50 years ago. Why? Because so many other religious communities have gotten into the school business. And so uh, now the Lutherans always had, had a, a fair share of schools, uh, Episcopalians, but they were, you know, very tony uh, places for the most part. But now you have uh, the Orthodox Jews in, in many places uh, are very numerous and they have schools but also Reformed Jews have now gotten into the school business and Southern Baptists that always told us that the U.S. Constitution forbade any kind of aid to denominational schools uh, because they had the public schools where the, the Baptist schools in the South. Uh, now they realize they can't have that anymore. And many of them and other fundamentalists have gotten into the school scene as well. 
And so the anti-Catholic card is a lot more difficult to play today. Secondly, we now realize the abysmal, abysmal failure of the government school system uh, at every level, uh, academically, socially, morally, it's, it's totally corrupt. I, I tell priests that they need to tell their people that parents who sub- submit their children to the government school system are endangering the eternal salvation of their children's souls. You, you actually, in, in, in your piece, Father Straminskis, you actually remind Catholic parents that they are obliged to send their kids to Catholic schools. How many Catholics realize this? Well, when, when I preach in parishes uh, on behalf of their particular parish school, and I quote that line from both the Second Vatican Council and from the Code of Canon Law, people after Mass say, Father, I never knew that. I never heard that. And, uh, but, I mean, the Church is very serious about that. And uh, in the 19th century, as the Catholic school uh, system began to blossom, the American bishops were were so adamant on the importance of the schools, and the laity were opposed to them, the bishops threatened excommunication for Catholic parents who did not use Catholic schools for their children. President Trump, you note, had a teleconference with Catholic educators in April. What was, what was the purpose of that call? Where, where did that call come from? Um, well, in some way, it was connected to the whole uh, pandemic situation. He had been speaking with various groups uh, and various religious groups uh, in particular about what their particular needs were in light of reduced income and, and so forth. And, uh, but it also gave him an opportunity, uh, first of all, to learn a lot about the Catholic schools. Um, it, was a, it, was a, I was on that, on that call, and it was a wonderful, uh, more than an hour, Originally, we were told it'd probably be about a half hour, and the president was late, and he apologized for being late. He said, I had another meeting, and I wanted to make sure that that was over, and I didn't have to go back to it, because I want to give you people as much time as you need or want. And actually, I think it was probably closer to an hour and a half, and, um, and people shared with him. Uh, there were uh, a number of bishops and uh, Catholic educators from around the country, and he said, Cardinal O'Malley made the point that uh, the Catholic schools of the Archdiocese of Boston saved the state $1 billion a year. And the president said, could you repeat that? (laughs) And he said, that's shocking. That's astonishing. And he said, you know, he said, you people, meaning you Catholic educators, are not good at tooting your own horn. He said, you have to let people know this. And, uh, And it reminded me that many years ago, back in the late 70s, early 80s, when Bishop Bevilacqua was the auxiliary bishop of Brooklyn, he instructed every Catholic school to put a sign in front of it that said, this Catholic school saves you, the taxpayer, X amount of dollars. And, uh, and I think that's the third point that needs to be made, is people need to realize that if their local Catholic school went belly up, uh, those kids would be dumped into the local government school. And if you think your uh, school tax, property tax, is a lot right now, just wait until that would happen. That's a good point. With the placement of a very strong advocate for school choice, I mean, this is, this is really Betsy DeVos's 
passion in breaking up, breaking up the government monopoly on schools and the power of the unions on this. Are Catholic schools on her, on her radar? Oh, very much so. And um, when she has made visits to cities, in fact, at times, she has even snubbed the local public schools and gone to visit either charter schools or uh, faith-based schools. So, and, and of course, she's uh, gotten the hire of the government school lobby because of that, they say. But her point, it was also the point of uh, Mayor Koch, the, the former mayor of New York. He was only mayor for a few weeks and he went and visited a Catholic school. And the, the media said, but, 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 but that's a Catholic school. And he said, I'm the mayor of all the children in New York City, not simply those in the public schools. And I think that's a point that need, needs to be made repeatedly, is that our children are not second-class citizens. And uh, simply because they are in an institution that is based on faith. Do other secular school choice advocates regard Catholic school advocates as allies or competitors? I think intelligent people realize uh, this is not the moment uh, to engage in silly turf warfare. And uh, again, I bring up the, the Southern Baptists as an example, who were our implacable enemies on school choice things until maybe the 90s. Uh, and so there's a good kind of ecumenism that exists there, as there is, for example, in, in the pro-life movement, where people band together, whether they're Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox Jews, or even atheists. So it's the cause that unites people, and you can put aside, uh, for practical political purposes, uh, the, the religious questions. Uh, and, and it's interesting, too, that that kind of an approach brings about uh, an amity among people that wouldn't have occurred otherwise. Yeah, yeah. It, charter schools are really public schools which are allowed to be run outside of certain regulations and union rules and so on. Does this decision open the way for Catholic institutions to get involved in the charter school movement? Well, uh, I would hope not. I'm, uh, I'm very concerned about uh, the charter school situation because it can lead people to conclude that you can have a Catholic charter school. Uh, there have been some in individuals and organizations that have promoted that, as a matter of fact. They say, well, we'll have religion a uh, half hour before the school day uh, begins, and, uh, and we'll have you know, uh, mass after school and, and things of that nature. And, uh, and that's, first of all, to misunderstand the nature of Catholic education. We believe that the entire curriculum needs to be permeated with, uh, with the Catholic faith. And so uh, there's no such thing as a, a neutral science class. And, uh, you know, so for example, uh, when we're studying fetology, uh, that's the ideal moment to talk about why the church teaches what she does about the inviolability of, of human life and why why abortion is so heinous a crime. Uh, and it's more important to teach it in that context than it is in an objective religion class. Uh, because it makes the point that 
uh, and so often you'll hear these silly uh, and dishonest Catholic politicians say, well, I know my church teaches that human life begins at birth and I at the conception, but uh, I can't abide by it. No, the church doesn't teach that. Science teaches that. <laughs> and so uh, to go into the charter system, and I know in dioceses where Catholic schools have closed and a charter school takes over the building and uh, and kind of gives the impression that, well, we're going to continue doing as much as we can. And uh, a number of bishops, as a matter of fact, have had the policy that when a Catholic school closes, it cannot be sold or rented to a charter school, uh, precisely because of the confusion that often occurs. What will smart Catholic educators do with this new Supreme Court decision? Are there, are there openings, are there opportunities to be pursued because of the decision? Sure. I mean, and, and this is not just for Catholic educators, it's for Catholic parents. And uh, to, to lobby legislators and to say, all right, we, we, we want our, our take our place at the, at the table. And, uh, and you know, can no longer say that you can't do it for legal reasons. And, um, and again, to band together with other like-minded uh, individuals and, and groups. So, um, yeah, again, Orthodox Jewish educational institutions, Lutheran, uh, various fundamentalist evangelical groups, and uh, and also with um, with you know secular institutions as well, but particularly with the faith-based communities. Uh, now we had a previous Supreme Court decision uh, a week or two before, in which uh, Justice Gorsuch turned into a gender theorist, and he inserted gender identity into the definition of sex in in the civil rights code is do you see this as a real threat to catholic schools well certainly catholic schools uh have to be very very careful that their mission statements are very clear and that their uh employee contracts are eminently clear uh there was another supreme court decision uh what last week as well that um Every teacher in a Catholic school has ministerial status, and therefore such teachers can't claim uh, after the fact that I was fired because I married a same-sex partner uh, or I'm involved in an uh, invalid marriage uh, or I've written or spoken publicly against the church's teaching on various, uh, various issues. So those are things that we have to be very very cautious about and to make sure that you know every t is crossed every die is every i is dotted and uh, and and the court gave us that uh, opportunity in the decision last week and we have to make sure that that's there yeah uh last question father stravinskis as secular ideology and sexual revolution mores uh continue to infiltrate the public schools and go down the age ladder, down well into elementary school. How should Catholic Catholic ed educators respond? Do they do they openly declare themselves an alternative, or do they just sort of keep 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 quiet and and, and talk about uh, what 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 they stand for instead? Well, um, to your point uh, about how far down this has gone. 
uh, I do uh, a lot of student teacher evaluations for uh, Grand Canyon University, which is a, a evangelical university. They've been very, very good with me, uh, very courteous, respectful, and so forth. But it brings me into public schools. And a few years ago, in a suburban public school, uh, I was evaluating a kindergarten teacher. And uh, as I sat there watching her, there was a pile of books to my right for the children to read. And the, the book on top was entitled, Heather Has Two Mommies. So as far down as kindergarten, the brainwashing already occurs. And, uh, and I think we made a critical mistake in the, in the late 60s, early 70s in Catholic schools by saying, oh, we're not opposed to public education. We just give something different and, and better in our own particular way. No, we are opposed to what goes on in those schools. And that is immoral. And we have to declare it for what it is. And uh, so I don't think it's sufficient to simply say we're an alternative, but an alternative to what? And, and so, so it's simply, it's not simply the academics. We do that a lot better for half the price. Uh, but at the same time, it is the other issue is the religious and moral values. And, uh, and there's no such thing as value neutral education. All education has some kind of uh, an orientation or a spin. And, uh, and the one that exists in the government schools, uh, essentially by law now, is, is that of something that is uh, reprehensible to an informed Christian conscience. Uh, one, actually, one more question, Father Strunskis. Is Catholic school enrollment growing? It depends on where you are, and it depends on a number of factors. Where bishops and priests are exercising their pastoral leadership, informing people of the importance of making that choice, yes. In some areas, uh, it's uh, a demographic problem. And it's not simply that the Catholic schools are losing uh, students, but that the government schools are as well. Um, you have a whole rust belt situation in, in, in parts, large parts of the Northeast. Uh, whereas in other parts of the country, in the Southeast and the Southwest, Catholic schools are thriving. Uh, and uh, have waiting lists, huge waiting lists. Uh, so it, some of it is a demographic issue, and some of it is uh, a lack of, of pastoral leadership. Father Stravinskis, thank you for joining us. We'll have you again. Good. Thanks much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.